This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, January 22nd, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, the president of the United States. These United States held a press conference upon departing from Davos today. He was totally unperturbed by the impeachment trial, he said, taking time to laud his perfect phone call, call Adam Schiff corrupt, incredibly corrupt, and said he was unfazed and unperturbed by these proceedings, which were a hoax, a total hoax. He was then asked about expanding his travel ban. So we have a travel ban. It's a very powerful ban. And a powerful ban has he. It bans most of Iran and Libya and Yemen and every last wandering Somali. Well, that's okay because visitor is not okay. But in context, visitors from those countries that are currently under the ban, they do come to America in the low thousands every year. But Trump is now considering banning people from Politico reports, Belarus, Myanmar, Eritrea, Kyrgyzstan, Sudan, and Tanzania. Okay. Again, I mean, Sudan and Myanmar have many people living in them, but just not many people who come to the United States, mostly because of poverty. But there was another country on the ban, Nigeria. The president is saying he might expand his powerful ban, his third version of which actually passed court muster, to include Nigerians. All right. In the first 10 months of 2019, 127,000 Nigerians visited the United States. For some context, in the 20 years between 1997 and 2016, the U.S. issued 15 H-1B visas to North Koreans, which are also part of the ban. So not all North Koreans came here with the H-1B visa for talented people, but many thousand Nigerians did. Nigeria is a friendly country to the United States. There is a significant flow of labor and remittances between the U.S. and Nigeria, and there are 300,000 Nigerian-born U.S. residents. Besides being an ally, the United States does military exercises with Nigeria. The United States needs Nigerians. Nigerian engineers and computer scientists greatly help American businesses. Or now, they greatly help Canadian businesses because the Canadians, not being stupid, have expanded their permanent residence under its express entry program. And there's just a flood of Nigerians heading into Canada. Nigerian ban. It's just crazy nonsense talk. It's almost as if someone is experiencing some pretty serious head trauma, which someone is. 11 members of the U.S. military were evacuated from the Iraqi Air Force base that the Iranians hit after the U.S. killing of Qasem Soleimani. Now, you remember the official word on that strike. I'm pleased to inform you the American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. The word casualty means injury. Therefore, the claim of no casualties is a lie. A lie that Trump greatly downplayed today when asked about it by reporters. 
President, a question on Iran. Initially, you said repeatedly to Americans um, that after Iran retaliated for the Soleimani strike, no Americans were injured. We now know at least 11 U.S. service men were airlifted from Iraq. Can you explain the discrepancy? No, uh, I heard that they had headaches and a couple of other things, but I would say, uh, and I can report, it is not very serious. You don't consider potential traumatic brain injury serious? Uh, they told me about it numerous days later. You'd have to ask Department of Defense. No, I don't consider them very serious injuries relative to other injuries that I've seen. Now, of course, the Trump apologists and sycophants will agree. Oh, evacuated for head trauma. Well, it's probably just a headache and a headache. That's not really an injury. I have headaches. And, you know, people often misuse the word casualty. So... All this means is what is a clear lie, a lie used at a strategic time to reassure the public about the consequences of a use of force that might not have been legal, should not be considered a lie, and it's only Trump's opponents making a big deal by, you know, holding him accountable for his words and the meaning of those words. And in other news, the Senate heard opening statements in the impeachment trial and very likely acquittal of Donald Trump. On the show today, I spiel about dopes and generals and dopes in general. But first, Donald Trump is a warped president and he has warped the presidency. But the presidency is like a piece of wood, hopefully more cedar than balsa, but it can and has taken on the warp and woof, oh, such woof, of its past occupants. This is all under consideration in the new book, on making the presidency Donald Trump's war on the world's most powerful office. Its authors, Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Wittes, will be on with us next. Now, if you watch CNN, you can see Susan Hennessy, but not Wittes. If you watch MSNBC, you can witness Wittes, but not see Hennessy. It is here on The Gist when we bring Hennessy and Wittes together. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That was some weird shit, so said a very smart man about a less smart man who held the same position, George W. Bush's comments on Donald Trump, his inaugural address. Well, this has all been some pretty weird shit, and here to dissect, if not examine under a microscope, that shit in an institutional way are Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Wittes. They have written a new book called Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. They are the executive editor and editor-in-chief of The Great and Estimable Lawfare. Thank you both for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So here's the concept of the book, and it's right there in the beginning. The notion, the uh, very clever chiasmus that it was said that the presidency would change Donald Trump, but it looks like Donald Trump is changing the presidency to what extent and how much. I'm going to start with this. Wasn't he elected to change it? Isn't that what his voters wanted? 
Yeah, so this is an idea that we try and take really seriously in this book, that, you know, Donald Trump came in as sort of a wrecking ball, and he's cast off all of these norms, and and he's done things his own way. And, you know, for, for people who are opposed to him as a political or policy matter, it, it all feels sort of bad and, and disruptive and, and overwhelming. And we wanted to try and examine it a little bit more closely and say, look, are are some of the norms and expectations about presidential behavior and uses of executive power worth getting rid of? And and, and is there something to any of these ideas? In part because the people who voted for Trump, at least to some extent, were motivated by this sense of wanting someone to come in and fundamentally change the office and fundamentally change their relationship with government. And I think what we lay out over the course of the book is he has and is proposing to fundamentally change the office but not in the way that he promised those voters and not in a way that addresses sort of the core concerns of those people. What he's done is he's he's taken this, this expectation and this license to be disruptive and instead of using it to, you know, actually serve his base, even a very narrow base, he, he instead has used it to repurpose executive power to be something that serves the president, the president individually, and serves the national interests or or the interests of Americans only sort of coincidentally and when it's convenient and sort of as an afterthought. And, And that is a transformative proposition when we look at the history of this office. But just to answer your question really directly, sure, people voted for Donald Trump to be disruptive. And Now we have three years of experience of what the nature of the disruption that he's proposing looks like. And so our project in this book was to take that seriously as as a set of ideas. What is he actually proposing that the presidency should look like and how does that play out over the many areas in which presidents exert power and use their authorities of their office? And you do take it seriously. You take it all seriously. And I was very impressed by the historical context and how you examine everything from the past on forward and also the other vectors, not just temporal, but how extreme are the norms, how good or bad are the norms. But I guess my question about the changing the presidency is this. So often you hear Donald Trump described accurately as changing the norms or Donald Trump doing things in a different way or Donald Trump behaving in an unprecedented manner. And the valence of that is almost always, and that's bad. However, I think before Trump, the president who changed the presidency the most was FDR. And he did so much norm breaking. And, you know, he had a four-term presidency. So is changing the presidency in and of itself such a problematic thing? No. In and of itself, the presidency changes all the time. And, you know, you mentioned FDR. The other one who's really worth mentioning in this regard is Woodrow Wilson. And, you know, the presidency sounded completely different after Woodrow Wilson. People change norms, right? And sometimes the system 
fights back to restore those norms, like when FDR ran for a third term and then a fourth term and the system responded with a constitutional amendment. And sometimes the system integrates those changes and the presidency adapts. But in order to decide whether a given set of changes is good or bad, it is actually worth stepping back and saying what is being proposed here. And when you have what Donald Trump has done, which is a giant fire hose of changes to actually step back and say, okay, how would the presidency be different if we integrated these norms rather than rejecting them? And then kind of evaluating, are they good ideas or bad ideas? Now, I want to be frank here in, as we say in the introduction to the book, we're not going to pretend to be neutral on that point. We think that the proposed changes that he is advancing are uh, essentially uniformly negative. But we don't start with that assumption. We start with the assumption, let, let's try to describe them and then evaluate them. So that tells me so much of your book says the idea of unprecedented, it challenges that. But most of the precedents for this horrid behavior, either personal or political, from Jackson to Grant. I came out of your book thinking, I don't know if it's precedented or not, and maybe there's a silver lining that we got through it, but most of this stuff was done back in the days of, uh, you know, political bosses and bare-knuckle duels and slavery and the 19th century. I do think we have to be, you know, fair and candid and historical about the idea that you know, we've had bad presidents before. We've had bad people who were presidents before. Norms have been tested. The office has been transformed. You know, there are ways in which Trump is not so incredibly unprecedented. But there are also ways in which he is incredibly unprecedented. So one is that he tests all the norms at once. So whenever we isolate presidential behavior, you know, Grant in the whiskey ring or, or Lyndon Johnson not really divesting from this radio station that he owned, or right, sort of each president you can pick and you can say, well, you know, they didn't adhere to this, but they're following all the other norms. Was it, I think Monroe and Madison bought up land around, uh, what? would become D.C. in a bout of speculation. Right, there, there's even speculation that, that George Washington might have uh, had some, uh, some yeah. unscrupulous land dealings. These are all people who are otherwise observing norms and who care about being seen to be acting on behalf of the public and, and care about the institutional legacies of their office. And so what Trump is doing is he's assaulting all of the norms at once. And that really does, it's, it's not just a difference in quantity, but, but of quality. It transforms the way they interact with one another, right? So he's not divested from his business and, and continues to have sort of personal ownership and profiting. That's breaking a norm. He also doesn't have White House press briefings. He also lies all the time. All the time. Those two norms interact with one another such that you're in a situation in which not only is the president doing something that's never been done before, but you, the American public doesn't understand what's going on. And that is all being put in service of this vision of the presidency as being about serving Trump. And so in that sense and, and in really a core way, when you take the vision seriously, 
It is entirely new. It is entirely novel, entirely radical. And, and I think we argue in the book fundamentally incompatible with the system of government and the system of legislation that we've constructed in this country. So I want to ask you about one more tangible norm that he's breaking, and then we'll get to conclusions. The tangible one is pardons. And always written into the Constitution is very broad latitude to the president for pardons. There was an office in the Justice Department, which he apparently is ignoring in terms of who to give clemency and pardons to. But, you know, it comes from essentially the divine right of kings, and it is an unchecked power of the executive branch. Can that norm be changed, codified, shored up post-Trump? First of all, lots of presidents have abused the pardon power. And one of the things about the pardon power is because it is so expansive, the definition of what constitutes abuse is very much in the eye of the beholder, right? So Trump is not the first president to pardon people in investigations that affect him. The most important element of the way Trump has used the pardon power is not his actual use of it. It's the way he's threatened to use it, which is, you know, to screw up investigations that involve him personally. In the long run, in a democracy, the people get what they want. And if they want this kind of a presidency, one that systematically conflates the interests of the office holder with the interests of the office and of the public more generally, they will get that. And they will get a bureaucracy that has to live with that and chafe at it. And one of the things that that will involve is a certain amount of defiance and management of that uh, set of behaviors over time. And that is ugly and it is weirdly undemocratic, but it is a creature of an executive branch that doesn't have a top that actually manages the bureaucracy. It has a bureaucracy that manages the top. So last question, how worried are you guys about the next Trump, the less distracted Trump, Trump 2.0? This time he's competent. Oh, quite worried. So I was speaking for myself. I mean, you know, I coined the phrase malevolence tempered by incompetence. And I go back and forth about whether in the end, how much tempering the incompetence does, but it clearly does some. And if you take it away, what you're left with is malevolence. And Trump is a incompetent demagogue. And I do think he has shown that the path is there for the competent demagogue. And that person can take a lot of the, the hacks he has found to the system and make them much more dramatic and much more uh, dangerous. And if you take the incompetence out of malevolence tempered by incompetence, you have a very ugly picture. You know, I'm more immediately concerned with a second term Trump than a Trump 2.0. And that's because a second term Trump is in, to some degree a necessary condition of a Trump 2.0. So we describe this vision of the presidency, the way that, that Trump wields the power and, and what he believes is his purpose. And we describe it as this proposal that he's put 
putting on the table. And ultimately, whether or not Donald Trump is is a blip and we all sort of return to the mean, and this is all just a kind of weird thing that happened once that we all chuckle nervously about 15 years from now, or whether or not it is a turning point into new and more clever demagogues that maybe swing from, from right-wing ideology to left-wing ideology. The difference between that is whether or not it works as a political matter, whether or not somebody can behave the way Trump behaves and use the office the way Trump uses the office and win re-election. And if Trump is able to prove that this works, it will be proof of concept. We don't just need to worry about what he will do in a dramatically unconstrained second term, but also what other politicians and future presidents will learn from him about what you can and can't do. What's up in November 2020 and what's on the ballot is not just this person. It's also this vision, this idea of the office. And if we vote for it, that is going to transform it moving into the future. (sighs) On Making the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office, authors Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Wittes, they are also half of the ongoing cast of the Rational Security Podcast, which I literally have never missed. Guys, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. To cups and cakes, incense and peppermints, crimson and clover, add the lyrical combo that is setting the world on its ear. Dopes and babies. Coming up, allegations the president called the nation's top military commanders a, quote, bunch of dopes and babies. Dopes and babies. Yes, everyone is talking about dopes and babies. Here's Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation. Lastly, I want to ask you about a new book. I know you haven't read it. It's coming out, but there have been excerpts released that directly reference you, which is why I want to give you a chance to respond. Um, He's called the president is is in this meeting accused of calling advisors dopes and babies and the like. Is the the description of the president and his management style matching your experience? I I don't know what book you're referring to. I just said I haven't read it, so I, I, I wouldn't know. The management style of berating advisors. The interviewee there was Gary Cohen. He was in the Pentagon briefing room when the president called his generals dopes and babies. Now, let's put for aside for a second the fact that babies are dopes. I know it's not nice to say, but babies have many strengths from the symmetry of their features to the way their heads smell. (sighs) But they're not smart. No smarter than dopes. But there seems to be something almost magnetic about the dopes and babies formulation. We are drawn to it like a mother responds to the sweet cooing of a baby's voice or like a dope responds to an episode of the Sean Hannity program. But a careful analysis of dopes and babies and the revelation that was dopes and babies tells us more about how the president works his fetid magic than what it purports to reveal, which is something about presidential peak incompetence and rudeness that we didn't know before. Because the dopes and babies revelation isn't a revelation at all. Well, to be fair, it's a limited revelation. Those words hadn't been reported, but what it really reveals is something about how we reacted to it. So the central meeting, right in the center of the story of the dopes and babies anecdote, that occurred on July 20th, 2017, six months after inauguration. It was, as per the reporting of the book's authors, Carol Leoning and Philip Rucker, it was about a meeting inside a Pentagon room nicknamed The Tank. Trump's top cabinet members brought him to the tank 
to speak with military commanders. The purpose was to educate the president on matters of war, peace, and security. It did not go well. I will quote from the new book, A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America. On July 20th, 2017, Mattis invited Trump to the tank for what he, Tillerson, and Cohen had carefully organized as a tailored tutorial. What happened inside the tank that day crystallized the commander-in-chief's berating, derisive, and demissive manner, foreshadowing decisions such as the one earlier this month that brought the United States to the brink of war with Iran. The tank meeting was a turning point in Trump's presidency. Rather than getting him to appreciate America's traditional role in alliances, Trump began to tune out and eventually push away the ex experts who believe their duty was to protect the country by restraining his more dangerous impulses. Okay, got it. Do you have it? You understand the basic facts? July 20th, meeting in the tank. Trump chafes because they try to educate him. Tillerson tries to set him straight. Trump screams. He browbeats. He insults. Per the Washington Post reporters, he calls the generals dopes and babies and says, I wouldn't go to war with you. The Washington Post described that excerpt as, in remarks not reported until now, Trump raged during a 2017 meeting at the Pentagon. But except for the exact phrase, dopes and babies, and I wouldn't go to war with you people, everything else about that meeting was well known for years. The first reporting I found about it happened a month later or two months later in 2017. It was in an AP story titled, How Trump's Advisors Schooled Him on Globalism. The story was told in a way that advanced the interests of a Trump staff member like a Tillerson or a Mattis who was trying to steer Trump towards competence and away from isolationism through gentle reinforcement. The details on the agenda were as follows, quote, the session was in effect American Power 101, and the student was the man working the levers. It was part of an ongoing education of a president who arrived at the White House with no experience in the military or government and brought with him advisors deeply skeptical of what they labeled the globalist worldview. That AP story offered no hint that the meeting in the tank had gone poorly. The only line about any of the participants' comportment was this, quote, Trump emerged and declared it a very good meeting. Indeed, there's tape of him right after that meeting. Tremendous people, Pentagon, nothing like it. But a month after that ABC report, NBC News broke a story about Trump's request in the meeting to increase the nuclear arsenal and the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's reaction, which they sanitized for broadcast as follows. The comments coming after NBC News exclusive report about a July 20th meeting in a secure room at the Pentagon called the tank, a meeting that immediately preceded Secretary of State Rex Tillerson calling the president a moron. Actually, it was fucking moron. So all manner of reporters and authors eventually got those fiery details of that meeting. Bob Woodward's fear had Trump raging in the tank. At one point, answering a question about what he would need in terms of military commitments in Asia to sleep at night, he said nothing. He'd sleep like a baby. Peter Bergen, CNN correspondent, in his book, Trump and His Generals, told me about the combustible tank meeting when he came on the gist about a month ago. And basically, it was a scene cooked up by Steve Bannon, the chief strategist, H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, Gary Cohn, the chief economic advisor, and Jim Mattis, the secretary of defense, and to some degree, Rex Tillerson, secretary of state. And they all had, they all wanted to tell President Trump kind of what the world looked like, what were American commitments overseas, what were American trade deals. The meeting was turned out a total fiasco. President Trump did some listening and didn't really intervene. But at the end of these presentations, he basically blew up and said, we aren't doing any of this. We're, you know, this is exactly what we're not doing. These trade deficits matter. 
NATO, we don't really have any real allies there. You know, no one is like we're bleeding money. And he used a lot of pretty colorful language. But dopes and babies is making a splash in the way all of those revelations didn't, except for the phrase fucking moron. Former White House chief ethics officer Walter Schaub said, quote, just when I thought I couldn't be more alarmed by Trump's unfitness, this excerpt. MSNBC's Joy Reid said, this is extraordinary, not just Trump showing zero respect to military leaders, but the brass unable to stand up to him, leaving it to a business guy, Rex Tillerson, to speak up. Former presidential candidate Evan McMullen tweeting, even after all we know about this rotten human being we call president, this is shocking. Trump berated Jim Mattis and our senior military generals in 2017, saying you're a bunch of dopes and babies. Trump's utterly disgraceful behavior risks our security. Yes, it does. But other than that exact phrase, dopes and babies, we knew this all. We are shocked anew. This was out there and should have been priced into an informed populace's calculation, to say nothing of supposedly informed pundits. I have a theory. It's all about the phrase. Just like the phrase fucking moron overrode the dangerous policy that Trump was advocating that got him called a fucking moron, so too does dopes and babies hold our attention in a way that for some reason, bouncing off the wall, shouting at everyone, denying reality, throwing all manner of unsubstantiated accusation at military experts, didn't. Sad to say, the primacy of the phrase, which is notably a Trump formulation, as that's the big news, that demonstrates Trump's power over all of our consciousness. And, and I've done no reporting on this, so this is just surmising, I will throw it out there. I don't even know if I believe it, but it's possible that the phrase dopes and babies was never uttered because Steve Bannon is clearly a source for all or at least most of the works I've cited. It is to his benefit to keep tales of this story alive. And he understands how a punchy phrase ensorcels the media. Again, no proof, only a possibility. I hesitate to impugn the reporting of the authors, but I don't think they did anything wrong necessarily. I'm just saying that you would think one of the many, many other chroniclers of this meltdown might have elicited a quote from someone who remembered Trump calling them all dopes and babies. I mean, maybe there was something, you know, we misremember that that Woodward quote included baby. Maybe there was a conflation or a misremembering or, as I said before, a purposeful manipulation by the motivated actor Steve Bannon. In any case, the argument I'm making isn't that We shouldn't be attending to these improprieties, all of these improprieties. It's just there's a lot of evidence we have been. If you were surprised that Trump went nuts in a meeting in 2017, well, that information was out there. And I don't blame you. We're overwhelmed by the information. But I think that's part of Trump's tactics. Like I said, a meeting which has been thoroughly reported in best-selling works is now treated as eye-opening. It is eye-opening, it's bone-chilling, and this is the big overall effect. It's really, really numbing. And that's it for today's show. The Gist's associate producer is Priscilla Alabi. She thinks this whole room is a bunch of duty heads and mouth breathers. The Gist is produced by Daniel Schrader, who finds you nothing more than dum-dums and silly billies. The Gist, home to ding-dong simps and dipsticks. Umpru dapru dupru, and thanks for listening.